coming up, the secret stories of Disneyland. That's next. From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 674 for the week of May 7th, 2017. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I am your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by my good friend Michael Bowling. Hey there, hi there, ho there. And our special guest Jim Corcus. Well, uh, thank, uh, thanks uh, to both of you, to Michael and Tom. It, it, it's always a, a great pleasure, and uh, it seems like uh, maybe by the end of the, this month we'll get to see each other uh, in person and be shocked about how we really look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jim, you and I have met several times. <laughs> you might be you he, might be shocked by how much still, old He might still be shocked. <laughs> yes. Well, well, you know, after more than 60 years, you'd think there were no more stories left to tell about Disneyland. But our guest today, Disney historian and author of over 20 Disney-related books, Jim Corcus, a good friend of the Diz, has just published a new book, Secret Stories of Disneyland, Trivia Notes, Quotes and anecdotes. I like how that all. I love the alliteration there. So, <laughs> so Jim, welcome back to the Diz Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition. So, it has been almost sixty-two years since guests first walked down Main Street USA at Disneyland, and there have been dozens and dozens of books written about the park. So, what led you to write another book about Disneyland? Money. <laughs> just money you know it, uh, it, it 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 it's it's like grabbing low hanging fruit no no basically you're absolutely right there there's been dozens of books about uh disneyland and and especially secrets and hidden treasures and trivia and all and uh, and dozens of, of uh websites uh, as well but uh one of the things that uh I was seeing, and I've got a lot of these in my uh, own personal connection, uh, collection here, uh, my own personal library. I, I found that uh, a lot of them were just repeating uh, the same old familiar stories and unfortunately also repeating some of the same old familiar falsehoods where people were doing an awful lot of uh, cut and paste and just grabbing something because my gosh, if it appeared in print, it must be true. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this really wasn't a passion or a goal for me, but I, I had written uh, two books called uh, Secret Stories of Walt Disney World. And, and the reason I wrote those books was because Walt Disney World often seems to be um, an orphan when mm -hmm. it comes uh, to Disney fans. There, there are not a lot of books about uh, Walt Disney World and, and certainly an awful lot of the uh, uh, stories and information are not being recorded or not being recorded uh, accurately. And, and so for me, that was a, a goal and a passion. Let me get, you know, that stuff in print so that current Disney fans can enjoy it, but also future researchers now have something that they can use, you know, to begin uh, their investigations. 
my publisher pointed out to me, he said, look, we're always complaining about these Disneyland books out there. You should do one. And I said, I don't want to do just another Disneyland book. And he said, Jim, I've known you for a long time. You never do just another. <laughs> you always find some other way of doing that. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take this as a personal challenge. Let's see if I can either come up with uh, some different stories about uh, Disneyland, because I've, I've certainly uh, talked with Imagineers. I, I, I spent time at Disneyland as a as a kid and a teenager and, and, and as an adult with an annual pass. And uh, I, I have a, a personal collection of, of uh, newspaper clippings and uh, magazine clippings, uh, personal letters, uh, publicity material from Disneyland. Let's see if I can come up with um, uh, some different Disneyland stories or find some of those familiar stories that everybody seems to know and, and see if I can find a, a different perspective or find a, a little mm -hmm. bit of different information uh, that nobody is sharing. So I, I took that a, as a challenge, and I'll be honest with you. I figured I was going to fail. I was going to fall flat on my face. And it's like everything that's a, ever needed to know about Disneyland has been written. But as I started to get into that, as I started to, to get into some of my old files and, and interviews, I was finding these things that nobody had talked about. And I figured, you know, maybe I've got a book there, and now suddenly I do. I have a book that's available on uh, mm -hmm. Amazon.com, and it, the Kindle version is, is available there, too. Or uh, people can go to ThemeParkPress.com and find secret stories of Disneyland. And, and I'm glad you like that subtitle because I picked that specifically, not just because it rhymed, <laughs> although I like that too, but, uh, but to give people a heads up that, that this is not the ultimate complete serious guide to, you know, behind the scenes at Disneyland. This is supposed to be playful and fun. It's accurate, but it really is. It's just trivia it, it, it's some quotes from people who who work there at, at uh, uh, Disneyland, and, and as we're going to discover as, as we keep talking, they're just some wonderful anecdotes, so, some mm -hmm. wonderful little silly stories that, you know, uh, probably would never, ever appear in, a, in an official book about the history of Disneyland. You know, it's an interesting observation you made about how hard it is, to, how there's not as many books written about Walt Disney World as there is about Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and that's, you know, as you know, connecting with Walt, we focus much more on Walt Disney World. And it's sometimes really a struggle to find information about that park. And I've always thought, my theory has always been, the reason is because there was no Walt Disney. Mm. Walt, Walt Disney is central to the story of Disneyland and talk about a character I mean, there are so many stories just about Walt Disney, the man, and how he just orchestrated, uh, conducted, you know, Disneyland from its inception to its creation and, and its further development. And there wasn't a central figure like that for Walt Disney World. It, it was almost as if it were the Magic Kingdom was a park almost created by a committee. You know, I, th I think that's a, a, a very insightful 
uh, observation. Yes, and also the fact that um, Disneyland always seemed as if it was the crown jewel. And in fact, if you talk to Disneyland cast members, and I love Disneyland cast members, is uh, they are very condescending to Walt Disney World because Disneyland is the park where Walt actually walked through the mm-hmm. park. And, and as you pointed out, uh, we see his touches all over, you know, no matter how many changes uh, have happened since uh, uh, Walt's uh, passing away nearly half a century ago, you can still stand in Disneyland and say, this is Walt's park. That's this. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I see that Walt, you know, made a choice about that. Whereas you're right with Walt Disney World, there's no one figure that um, that that uh, stands out. And and you're right; they were rushing both his, his older brother uh, Roy O. Disney, and uh, even the head of construction, uh, Admiral Joe Fowler, and and the president of uh, WED Imagineering, uh, Richard Irvine. Uh, a lot of them were just. Um, playing, you know, what would Walt do? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we've got more room, we've got more money. What are some of the things that Walt would have wanted done that, that we could in, incorporate here? Um, but again, it doesn't have that, that personal touch, but for crying out loud, Walt Disney world, you've, you've got, uh, four theme parks, you've right. got the two water parks, you got two dozen resorts, you've got a downtown shopping area, you, you know, this is so massive, and yet um, it really is an orphan. It doesn't get that respect. And also the fact that people haven't written a lot about Walt Disney World, it's very difficult uh, uh, to verify and confirm, you know, uh, information. You know, whereas with Disneyland, you had people um, when Disneyland was actually much, much younger. You had you had people like Randy Bright and Bruce Gordon and, mm-hmm. and David Mumford and the Jansen brothers doing e-ticket, mm-hmm. you know, that were that were literally recording and documenting all of this information and talking with the people who were there who had done it, you know, Um and had access uh, uh, to papers and documentation. And in those days, uh, the Disney archives was open to outside researchers. So you could go in and say, you know, I'd like to see information about this, 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 this. Well, the Disney archives has long been closed to anybody outside the company, uh, period. And, um, you know, many of the people who know those stories, long gone. But for Walt Disney World, there was nobody there uh, to record those. So, again, as I said, that was one of my uh, uh, passions was let's get some of this stuff down in print, you know, because at Walt Disney World, they really did. The Imagineers went overboard trying to work with details and stories and and uh, all of this right from the get-go, whereas with Disneyland, it, it was a case of this is a park that evolved. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've had friends who said, gee, I wish I had a time machine so I could go back to 1955. I said, if you went back to 1955, you wouldn't recognize the park. You no. know, there'd be all these wide open areas. 
the landscaping hadn't grown into to maturity. Uh, there'd be a lot of uh, uh, iconic attractions, uh, you know, uh, that were completely missing. You know, uh, in 1956, Walt added in 13 new attractions. In, in uh, uh, 1957, eight of them. You know, and uh, and we go up to 1959. We got the first three e-ticket attractions. You know, mm-hmm. uh, probably going to Disneyland in 1959-1960 would be a, a a better choice. You know, to to see some of these things, and and it would you would recognize it as Disneyland. With Walt Disney World, even though things have changed, it it was sort of like we're going to hit the ground running. <laughs> yes, definitely. You know, this is it. <laughs> Here, here, here's this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and again, a lot of great Walt Disney World um, uh, uh, stories. Uh, 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 Bill Sully Sullivan uh, said, you know, thank heavens for Coors beer because that helped build the Magic Kingdom. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Sully. I said, I'm an old California guy. I know that Coors beer was not allowed to be sold past the Rocky Mountains. And so it was not available anywhere. And so Sully told me the story that since they had so many California people and they loved Coors beer, that they had trucks coming from the Disney studio with crates that were labeled uh, small parts for Peter Pan's flight. (laughs) And inside those crates, Coors beer. Uh, well, boy, P- Tinkerbell didn't have a very straight flight after she opened those crates. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. But but again, that's what it took to, you know, uh, get some of these people on board to, to build some of these things because they were homesick. They, they didn't have some of the things that, that they wanted. And <laughs> And again, it was like, well, you know, at Disneyland, we could, you know, call this guy and, it, you know, we could... No, Walt Disney World, whole new thing. Mm-hmm. So again, it's wide open, and it's still wide open. I'm I'm actually working on a third volume of Secret Stories of Walt Disney World, because again, Walt Disney World's now going. It's going to have Avatar Land, which I understand you and Tom are coming out to visit, and we then are. there's going to be the Star Wars Land and the Toy Story Land, and a, a bunch of new things. So it's it's constantly you know, uh, changing. So we better get this stuff down. Yeah. But at Disneyland, I, I would say the, the same thing is happening. Star Wars land is coming out there. And so you're going to increase the area from, um, uh, 85 acres to the public to almost a hundred acres. And to me, it's always just fascinating about how Disneyland is such an intimate experience, but how they've crammed in so many things right. into that limited area and yet it doesn't really seem cramped you know main street doesn't seem to intrude on adventureland or any of those mm-hmm. yeah. well one of the items on my bucket list is to visit the parks with you jim so you can share your stories about what we're seeing and experiencing so, oh, so how about so how about if we do the you, next you'd get to the point thing. where you go oh just shut up i don't need to know the story of that fire hydrant no, come on, you know, Let, let's no, just go get a hot dog. I, 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 I don't want to know that, you know, <laughs> this guy worked over here and, and, you know, 
Well, that's, no, a, that's why it's actually, off at an angle there. You know? <laughs> well, no, actually that I would like. But how about if we do the next best thing and take our listeners on a virtual tour of Disneyland so you can share some of your stories from your book, Secret Stories of Disneyland Trivia Notes, Quotes, and Anecdotes. Yes, and, and again, that was very difficult because being a historian, I wanted to tell stories of Disneyland past. And that was not the point of the book. The point of the book was, this is a book that somebody going to Disneyland today could use. So Mm -hmm. what attractions, what things are there at Disneyland today? But because I am a historian, I could sneak in a little bit on each of the stories of, well, you know, those fish actually came from uh, the mine train through nature's wonderland, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so I was able to sneak in a, a little bit of history, but yeah, the, that was another challenging thing about the book was, you know, let's do it as the Disneyland of today so that, um, and the immediate future so that, uh, uh, readers who purchase it, they can take the book with them to the park and hopefully this will maybe enhance their experience, not mm-hmm. destroy the magic but enhance the experience of, oh, well, that's why that is there, and that's why that connects with that. Oh, yeah. So, we, and yeah, we let's, should, let's, let's go yeah. take a tour. Yeah, and definitely none of this destroys the magic. This definitely does enhance the experience, all the stories in here. Because uh, I know that we have a, a lot of people, they don't want the, um, they don't want the real backstage details. They no, like well, well, I, when I go to a restaurant, I don't so. want to know what's going on in the kitchen. Yeah, so so this book does it's it's a great one to have when you're standing in the queue. Um, mm-hmm. But now the first thing most of us see when we enter Disneyland is that magnificent train station. And, and in your book, you have this hilarious story about the station's clock. <laughs> yes, and 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 again, you know, it what, what a beautiful um, train station, and and it needed to be, you know, authentic because it's it's the very first thing that, uh, you know, guests, uh, would see from the parking lot and the parking lot today, of course, is Disney California adventure. But in the old days, that was the parking lot. And so you could see that. And just like a weenie, it would draw you, you know, t- uh, towards that. And also, of course, a train, uh, symbolized, uh, beginning a journey, go- going somewhere new, going somewhere you know, uh, exciting and, and interesting. So that was very important. And so it was also very important then that it be authentic and that the, the clock, you know, be an, an authentic, uh, clock to, to create that sense of, uh, you know, uh, main street America between 1890 and 1910. And, uh, so the train station was one of the first things that, that was, uh, built, but they didn't install, um, the clock. They didn't install the clock uh, until much later because they put a camera inside there uh, to film out and show Main Street being built. So uh, I think some people have probably seen those uh, uh, fast-forwarded uh, mm-hmm. things of you know buildings being built on Main Street. The, the camera is positioned right there where where the clock is, and so the clock was one of the last things installed. And of course. Everything was being rushed at, at the last minute. But um, the first uh, uh, couple of weeks, actually the first couple of months, one of the biggest complaints 
that um, uh, Disneyland was getting was that the clock was showing the wrong time. And, and of course, they had, they had invested money on, in the clockworks and, and all of that. And, and, of course, when one of these complaints came, uh, they, they contacted maintenance, and this poor little maintenance guy had to come with his, his ladder because that's the only way to get up to the clock there. And he had to struggle his way up there, and he you know would, would adjust the clock, and he'd uh, come down and remove the ladder. And sure enough, later in the day, they'd, they'd get that same complaint. And, and so, you know, again, you've got incredibly intelligent people. And so, you know, they're thinking, you know, it, is there something wrong with the clock itself? You know, is there something wrong with the gears after a certain uh, amount of time? Does it slip? And as it slips, it starts to lose time each time it slips. Is it the California heat? You know, is uh, is, is that uh, affecting things? You know, could it, could something be shrinking, you know, or... Or, or enlarging or whatever, so it, it, the clockwork isn't just working, you know? Or is it foul play? You know, because there were some things that were sabotaged uh, at, at Disneyland. There were some workers who didn't think it was the happiest job on Earth. In fact, uh, they cut the electrical cables uh, to flight to the moon on, on opening day because, because uh, they were disgruntled, they were not being paid enough, and that they were being forced to work overtime and, and all of this. And so what they did is, you know, they talked to the maintenance guy, and, and, and he goes, well, you know, I, I try to be as precise as I possibly can, you know. I, I bring it out here, and before I go up to the ladder, I, you know, I phone the park operator, you know, to make sure I get the correct time. I set my watch, you know, to that time. I climb up. I set the clock and then I come back down. And sure enough, that's exactly what he was he was doing and 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 yet they were still getting complaints, you know, the the time the time is wrong. And so finally they said we're going to follow this every second so we can see where where is the slip up. And uh, so they even put a uh, a person in uh uh town hall there uh, City Hall, uh, where the uh, park operator was. And uh, sure enough, she got a call from the guy. And so what she did is she went to her window and looked out and told him the time that was on the face of the clock. <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> you know, and, and, and again, you, you know, you it, it would never occur to you. <laughs> this is what is... What is happening, and that's it. But the the clock has been correct, you know, uh, uh, ever since. And um, there are a lot of clocks in in Disneyland that are not that do not show the correct time, and and uh, that's for a variety of reasons. For instance, uh, um, the uh, uh, March Hare's uh, the, no, the White Rabbit's uh, uh, pocket watch, you know, is always showing the wrong time. But, uh, you know, that, that suits his character there. So wherever you find him in the park, you know, his clock, is his watch is showing the wrong time there. But uh, the, the one on the train station shows the correct time now. And, <laughs> and again, I, I don't think this is a story you would find in most of those other uh, Disneyland books about um, 
you know, uh, secrets and uh, uh, trivia. And again, it's an inconsequential little story, but but I find it, you know, just really amusing and delightful. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, and again, sort of personalizes uh, uh, Disneyland for me. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, that people who buy the book uh, get that same reaction of, oh, that's a cute story. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's and a now great when I look story. at the clock, I'll, I'll uh, you know, that, that'll stick in my mind. Yeah, it's a great story to share with friends when you're walking down Main Street. <laughs> but um, <laughs> dazzle them with, with your knowledge there. Now, when, when I would have students, when I was a teacher, and I'd have students go to, there's, you know, they were parents taking them out of school, go to Disneyland. I have a little packet for them of things to do in the park. It was sort oh, of a little sort of scavenger an independent hunt. study, huh? Yeah, it was a little scavenger hunt and a little history, uh, a little some some history was involved and some trivia. One of the things, though, I always had them look for was they had to find the mezuzah on Main Street because mm. this is something I am absolutely sure everybody walks by. And if it was during um, the winter holidays, I would ask them to find out where is Hanukkah celebrated in Disneyland. Mm. And uh, so, so I am, um, Again, this is an item as people are rushing to, you know, to get their fast pass for Space Mountain or whatever. Don't even notice this. So can you tell us the story behind the mezuzah on Main Street and and where is the mezuzah on Main Street? (laughs) (laughs) Well, absolutely. Well, well, first off, uh, we need to realize that uh, Walt Disney had uh, a a great respect for all religions, you know, and in fact... um, uh, that first year when Disneyland was a huge success, there was an Imagineer who uh, came up to Walt and said, well, you know, what you should do is you should now create a Bible land, you know, because you know how to do dark rides, you know how to do, you know, and, and this would be uh, uh, terrific. And Walt said, no, no. He says, I prefer a Disneyland which is open to everybody, you know, and is welcome to every uh, uh, religion. Um and uh, so out here at uh, uh, Walt Disney World, and I'll keep referring to that, and you guys will have to keep me honest, because I run into this with uh, Imagineers all the time as well, too, is there are superficial similarities, so you sometimes confuse Disneyland with Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first came out here to Florida in 1995, it was like a Twilight Zone experience. You know, I was in the Magic Kingdom, and somebody was asking for directions, and I go, well, just just past the Pinocchio attraction. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, the Pino- in Fantasyland, the Pinocchio attraction. Is a- no, there is no Pinocchio attraction at Walt Disney World. Yeah. So anyway. That's, a, that's what uh, Tom always says. Everything's in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, the, uh, what happened is at Walt Disney World, there's a large display at the American Adventure at Epcot that uh, uh, celebrates uh, Hanukkah. And, um, but there's nothing comparable uh, at, uh, at Disneyland. So in uh, 1995, um, Paul Pressler, who uh, a lot of people have an opinion about, <laughs> but he was the Disneyland uh, president, he felt that there needed to be something during the holiday season, uh, to represent uh, Hanukkah. And um, so the mezuzah is a, uh, uh, it's this uh, rectangular uh, 
very small uh, uh, piece that is uh, affixed to a door frame uh, at an angle. And um, uh, what it does is uh, uh, it, it's in honor of uh, uh, rabbinical uh, Judaism which says that, you know, you need to put a prayer there, you know, on, on, your, on your doorway. And so it is located um, on the emporium, on, uh, 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 on a doorway just along the emporium there on the west side of the street, uh, just before you get to the uh, New Century uh, Jewelry uh, Shop. And there's a little uh, uh, office uh, for Dr. Benjamin Stein. And now where that name came from, even I don't know. I tried to do research. I, I've tried to talk with, with people. Uh, there is no Benj Dr. Benjamin Stein that had any um, uh, uh, connection with Disneyland. He wasn't, you know, the the house doctor there or whatever. Or, uh, to the best of my knowledge, not connected with any uh, uh, relative who who worked there at the the park. But it but it's a very Jewish sounding name. And so uh, uh, they have that, and uh, uh, so look for Dr. Benjamin Stein's uh, uh, doorway there, and, and he has a, a sign that says, uh, uh, have a fever, have the flu, come on in, and we'll cure you. And during the holiday season, in the upper window, uh, they'll have a menorah. So, uh, you know, just a very, very nice touch, and... Uh, in uh, as as I mentioned in the book, in 2004, somebody stole it, <laughs> and so it it got replaced and uh, uh, did that because uh, uh, people uh, at Disneyland like to take a little souvenir with them, you know. But that's why when they changed the uh, 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 Snow White's uh, Scary Adventures in 1983. Uh, they replaced the uh, poisoned apple that the Wicked Witch had her in, in her hand because from 55 to 83, that was a real apple. And uh, um, rambunctious uh, Disney fans would reach out and grab the apple. And now they can't. Now, now it's just a, a, an illusion there. So if you reach out to grab that apple, your hand just goes right through the apple. Mm -hmm. But... Yep. Uh, so a, a nice touch, and, and what's interesting to me is, is I think Walt would have included it um, if he had thought of it, you know? There was just so many things to think about, you can't think about everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Wondering but if but I, like I think that's great that you put that on, on the scavenger hunt, because, yeah. again, something out of the ordinary that people wouldn't um, normally look at, and, and I think that's one of the things that makes... Um, uh, Disneyland, uh, such a wonderful uh, uh, experience, is because of that attention to detail. All mm -hmm. of these little items that we just take for granted because they just seem right. You know, they don't stand out. It's like, well, of course that would be there. All right. Mm -hmm. Moving on. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe Dr. Benjamin Stein was like Paul Pressler's podiatrist or something. I mean, who knows? Well, I, uh, well I'm hoping that um, maybe listeners to this podcast will uh, enlighten me because I did do my homework. I, I always try to find three independent sources for every fact that I include in a book so that people feel that sense of comfort 
mm-hmm. um, uh, that uh, y- you know they they can they can trust this, but nobody can know everything. And and once a, a book gets published or something is in print, suddenly people come out of the woodwork and said, "Oh well, didn't you know?" Da 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 da. da, da. Oh, oh okay. Gosh, that makes sense to me now. I wish I'd known it before I'd written something down. But... <laughs> oh, that's, that's why you have volumes, too. <laughs> now, I always thought one of my, I think one of my dream jobs, I have a couple at Disneyland if I if I ever like applied, it would be driving a Main Street vehicle. I just think that would be so much fun that you begin a person's day by setting the stage, driving the vehicle for them. Really? But, See, yeah, I, I would I, be worried about hitting somebody. <laughs> okay, okay. See the castle every day, get the honk your horn at people. I think it'd be great. But, um, but we all know that um, Imagineer and Disney legend Bob Gurr is known as the person responsible for designing anything on wheels at Disneyland. And the yes, main... that's how he describes himself. Yes, <laughs> he is. Yeah. And, and the Main Street vehicles he designed are called Gurmobiles. I didn't know, though, how they came to be called Gurmobiles until I read your book. So it was really ah. interesting. There really was a Gurmobile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, uh, all of those vehicles, everybody thinks, oh, well, those are, um, you know, antique uh, vintage cars that, that people... No, I, 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 Bob is a, 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 a good friend. And uh, in fact, he uh, wrote the afterword for my uh, book, The Unofficial Disneyland 1955 Companion. And uh, so, you know, I, I thank heavens he's still around. So, you know, you can go to him as a as a primary source. And he said, you know, uh, they looked at a lot of um, antique car collections and uh, they realized, well, we can't do this because what happens when something breaks down? You know, there's no part to replace it with, you know, and and safety is an issue and all of that. And so um, all of those uh vintage vehicles were actually built by Bob, oftentimes using, uh, you know, a chassis or parts from a, a 19, uh, mid-1950s uh, car, and then the exterior had authentic items. And, and Bob literally had to put in uh, sort of a backfire and a putt-putt and a, and a little shake so that people would think the, these were uh, authentic. And uh, one of them that uh, Walt was especially fond of was the Carnation Milk Company delivery truck. And you'll, you'll find photos of, of Walt, you know, uh, sitting there and waving. And, and sometimes uh, uh, on days uh, before the park opened, Walt would drive that down uh, uh, Main Street and just like you wanted to do, would honk the horn and all of that, you know, just to... He, he, was, he was just really a, a kid at heart. You know, we think of him in those little, that little electric car that he has, but he, mm-hmm. he liked those, those full-size vehicles as well. Well, um, Bob Gurr can't do everything, although he definitely tries. You know, he, he designs, he, he does the engineering, uh, he does some of the actual building. And um, uh, for the milk truck, uh, he outsourced... Um, uh, the grill on the front of the truck. And uh, so his friend, just to, uh, uh, for a laugh, because again, this isn't an authentic vehicle, but guests are going to think it was, he put an emblem, uh, just like you would have an emblem on, on any car, 
on the grill of the truck that said Germobile. And Bob says he got just such a laugh because he would stand in uh, uh, on Main Street and he would watch the these people come by and go, oh, yes, Germobiles. Yes, my grandfather had one of those. You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it never really worked well and, 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 and all of that. And, and the first time that term uh, appeared in print was uh, the Mickey Mouse Club uh, uh, magazine in uh, 1957. And so... Uh, you know, they referred to it as a girlmobile, and it those ones have been called that ever since. And uh, what a wonderful tribute to to Bob Gurr, who uh, you know w- was so inventive. And again, one of those great Imagineers. When Walt tells you do something, you do it. You know, yeah, pe- you, you pe- don't say no. Way. You find a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and yep. by the way, I, I, I think you might be safe dra- driving those vehicles, because even though it's not in the book there, they, they only go about four miles per hour tops there. So. <laughs> and people still get in their way. <laughs> yes, well, they do. And, and again, that's why you don't see them being used as often as, as I would like, mm-hmm. uh, or as often as they were in the old days, because Disneyland is just so crowded now out out here at Walt Disney World Main Street gets so crowded that by noon um you don't use the uh, uh horse drawn trolleys because because the streets are just so packed there's no way of of maneuvering that uh through them you know and again a shame but uh you know that's that's uh, the cost of being popular yeah yeah so, well, and I know you have you have many more stories about Main Street, but folks are going to have to buy They're the book. They're going to have to buy the book. <laughs> so buy let's, the book. So and, let's, and, and again, as I tell your listeners, if you want a sequel to this, if you want a, a, a second volume, you're going to have to vote with your wallet. <laughs> you're going to have to buy a copy of this book or, or buy the Kindle version or whatever. And uh, uh, I will tell you that one of the things that, uh, I want to do if there is a second volume is I want to include um, some vintage uh, uh, stories as well. You know, you, you were talking about how Walt had a personal touch on, on everything, you know, a story I wanted to include, but I couldn't because the thing just isn't there at Disneyland anymore. It, it was the tree in the Tahitian terrace. And, uh, you know, it later became Aladdin's Oasis and then just, mm-hmm became nothing there. But uh, the Tahitian Terrace, which had the Polynesian Review and whatever, they couldn't find a tree large enough to please Walt. And so, of course, they built a tree. And this is the, the story that is called the 222 story. So they built this concrete tree, uh, which was going to you know, be the backdrop and, and sort of the covering for this huge stage where you'd you would have the the dancers. You would have the people, you know, uh, twirling uh, uh, swords and fire and, and things like this. And uh, so Walt went with uh, two Imagineers who were in charge of the area. And he looked at the tree and he shook his head and he said, too low. Because oftentimes Walt couldn't tell until it he actually saw it, you know, taking a look at the pictures, taking a look at the model. 
you know, uh, Walt always said that can always trick your eye and whatever. You have to actually see the thing to, to know. And one Imagineer next to him said, too bad, because, you know, there, there's nothing they could do. It, it'd be too expensive to fix and all that. And the other Imagineer went, too late, you know, the concrete's hardened and all that. So two, two, two. But Walt, of course, you never say no to Walt. So his eyes flashed red. And the next day there was a crane there. And what they did is they cut through the base of the tree and the crane lifted up the tree and Walt made sure an additional six feet of concrete <laughs> were poured in for the trunk. Because again, to Walt, don't tell him this is going to be too expensive or too time consuming for Walt. You get it right. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, uh, uh, to refer again to Walt Disney world, that wasn't always the case out at Walt Disney world. Since Roy O. Disney was in charge, and he's a financial guy, uh, sometimes there was a little bit of, well, we're not going to do the big facade that we do for uh, Small World at Disneyland. You know, we'll just do a, a, a small opening, and then, you know, for Phase 2 or Phase 5 or whatever, we'll consider doing, you know, that. For Walt, not a problem. Well, where do you want to go from Main Street? Well, let's well, since we're in Adventureland, why mm-hmm. why don't we head over there? Okay, because that no, is an adventure. <laughs> it is, and you know, in your book, you do have some interviews that you shared, and one of them was interesting. I think our guests would find interesting our, our listeners because a lot of people don't realize that the Jungle Cruise skippers corny but funny spiel was not an original feature of the attraction. So in your book, Secret Stories of Disneyland, you share an interview you had with Mark Davis Mm -hmm. on how he helped to change the tone of the Jungle Cruise more to what it is today. Yes. And and, and again, you know, uh, when I was talking about, okay, how can I find different stories that other people, you know, don't have? Fortunately, I had the opportunity when I was growing up in, in the Los Angeles area of interviewing some of these guys like like Mark Davis and and Bill Evans and Ken Anderson and, and all that. So pulling out these interviews and looking at them, you know, decades later, suddenly I'm, I'm seeing all of these great Disneyland stories that they were telling. And um, Mark said that uh, one of the things that uh, he Walt sent him down there just to take a look at Disneyland to see, you know, what, uh, how can you plus it? How can you add things to that? And Mark says, one of the things I saw first off the bat was everything was there was so serious, you know, especially the Jungle Cruise ride, because the Jungle Cruise ride was inspired by the True Life Adventure documentary films. And those were mm-hmm. supposed to be, you know, factual and, and accurate. And so, you know, the, the spiel that the Jungle Cruise uh, 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 skippers were, were doing were, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, this is this type of flower and this is the Latin name for it. And it usually grows in the Amazon at this point, And, you know, and and but but Mark was seeing that uh, they were starting to slip in, you know, uh, a, a, a couple of uh, uh, gags you know like on one side uh, 
uh, of the river, there was an African elephant, and on the other side, a little further down, was an Indian elephant. And you can tell the difference because uh, the size of the ears and all this. And so um, uh, the skipper would go, uh, over there on your left, that is the second dangerous uh, animal uh, in the jungle, uh, an African elephant. And then they go for a, a minute or two, and they go, oh, and over on the right-hand side, that's the most dangerous animal, his mother-in-law. <laughs> and uh, right from the beginning, they were also doing um, the, the gag about the backside of water, you know? Uh, so some of this was coming naturally from, uh, you know, uh, the skippers, because, uh, you know, it, it, it's like... Uh, one of one of the things is uh, well that's something you don't see every day unless you're a jungle cruise skipper and you see it you know five times an hour <laughs> uh, so so Mark took that as you know this is a natural thing that people want to do so let's let's see what we can do to add you know some humorous set pieces and uh, all of this and 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 let's you know. Uh, because again, these are fake animals. <laughs> these are fake animals, you know. And and no matter how detailed they are, you know, you know, you're not, you know, uh, in the Amazon jungle or on an Indian river or whatever. And one of the things that Walt had had also asked was for um, Mark to do up a, a couple of things that would be uh, uh, on the uh, that could be seen from the uh, train, because. Uh, in those days, basically, you took uh, the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad, and it was a grand tour. It was nonstop. You got on at the Main Street Station, and you got off at the Main Street Station. If you mm-hmm. got on at the Frontierland Station, you got off at the Frontierland Station. And that's why it's a grand tour. You're taking a grand tour of the entire park because this is something so new you know, you need to acclimate yourself and figure out where things are and, you know, oh, maybe that's where I want to go take a look at something. And so Walt realized people are just seeing a lot of trees, a lot of bushes. So can we come up with with uh, a couple of gag things uh, uh, along the track? And so uh, one of the things that Mark came up with as the train would pull into Tomorrowland is he came up with the idea of a flying saucer that had crashed and you had two little green aliens uh, hitchhiking to try and get a ride. Um, uh, one of the ideas he had for Adventureland was uh, cannibals around this pot, and there was a tourist inside the pot wearing Mickey Mouse ears. <laughs> and uh, one of the other gag, because again, you don't just come up with, for Walt, you don't just come up with with one gag. Uh, you know, an Imagineer once came to Walt with an idea, and he says, well, what do you think? And Walt says, you know, it's very difficult to choose between one. <laughs> so Imagineers realized you give Walt a couple of possibilities. And so one of the things that uh, Mark Davis came up with was uh, those explorers on the pole and the rhino underneath with, with the horn, you know, giving them, you know, the point and so that they move up. And again, you know, what a great visual gag, and also in, in that time, very simplistic, because before, audio animatronics didn't come until 1963 with the, with the Tiki Birds, and that was also because of declassified information 
from the U.S. government in terms of uh, space shots. You know, how, how, you know, when a rocket goes up in the air, how do those different stages drop off? I, I always thought, well, they just drop off. You know, you, gravy comes when you cook the meat. You know, stuffing's already in the turkey. What, isn't that it? Uh, no, what happened is they send up a sound pulse that opens a clip and that sends down that stage. And then a different sound would open up the clip for the second stage and, and send that down. And Walt says, okay, if you've got a clip that's closed and you send sound and then it opens and then you cut the sound and that clip closes, that could be like the beak of a bird. Opening and closing, opening. So uh, Tiki Room is, is using <laughs> declassified military information <laughs> on, on uh, uh, America sending up spaceships. Well, anyway, before audio animatronics, you had what were called electromechanicals. And in fact, that's how that was the term that was used in magazines like Popular Science and all of that. And electromechanical was exactly that. You had a mechanical figure and it was controlled by electricity but it could only do a, a very simple movement you know open close you know turn left turn right you know move forward move back and so having that rhino you know just step forward and the horn go up very simple to do and walt said hey you know that's too good to have on the train ride we're gonna put it in there and so he did, and, and uh, Davis also came up with the uh, elephant bathing pool, and uh, it's okay. The elephants are taking a bath, but they're wearing their trunks. <laughs> so, uh, you know, because this is a family park. And um, and he, he stuck in the, some gorillas and, and things like this. And so in the book, uh, instead of having me try to clumsily explain all of this, uh, Mark tells it in his own voice, you know, this, mm -hmm. this is what it was like. It, Walt came to me and told me this, this is what I was thinking. And this is, this is how uh, I got it, um, done, you know, and just like, uh, secret stories of Walt Disney world, I limited each story to just two pages. So it, it, it it's that nice little, um, uh, it's like getting just a nice little mint at the end yeah. of your meal it's, or it's, something, it's a, it's right? A nice little, you know, it's and, nice and, and it's and, and it's complete, so you don't yeah. have to read the book from front to back. You just jump to whatever mm -hmm. chapter you want, and, and you've got a, a full, satisfying uh, experience just in, in two pages there. Nice little bathroom book. There you go. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Now, I, I, I think bathroom <laughs> books are highly underrated. One of my favorite books that I take when I travel is the uh, Uncle John's Bathroom uh, Companion. Yes, I, I, I think those. there's like 26 volumes. <laughs> but I take it with me because I only have to commit to two or three pages. That's it. <laughs> now, talking about um, the Jungle Cruise, now, I know that, you know, originally Walt wanted to have real animals on the Jungle Cruise, and he mm -hmm. had to settle on the mechanical ones because the realities of having living creatures are presented to him. But what I didn't know was that besides mechanical animals or alligators, there were once live alligators oh, as that, part absolutely. of the Jungle and, and, and again, this this was the story I got from um, Bill Sully Sullivan, and and he was a Jungle Cruise skipper in 1955 
and then later worked his his way up uh, the chain of command. He, uh, you know, uh, uh, became a vice president there at, at Disneyland. He uh, ran Epcot out here. He was president of the Magic Kingdom for a while. And so he told me this story that Walt, of course, you know, didn't want to fool people. So, uh, you know, on the uh, uh, first postcards that came out for Adventureland, uh, they had the words animals in quotes. You will see, you know, exotic animals, but animals were in quotes because Walt didn't want to fool anyone. But, uh, but he felt very badly about not having real animals. And he couldn't have real animals because animals, uh, most of the ones he wanted were nocturnal, you know, so they'd be asleep during the day. And, and uh, one person said, well, Walt, you know, a, a tiger can leap like 20 feet. And, and um, Walt said, oh, well, that's great because, because the boat's only 10 feet away from shore, so the, the tiger will go over the top, <laughs> you know. So, that darn Walt. So, so anyway, he wanted something real there because he also realized that if you see something real, you know, that sticks in your mind. So then when you see something unreal later, you know, that thing that was real sort of sticks in your mind. So it seems less unreal. Uh, so one of the popular tourist attractions in Los Angeles was the Los Angeles Alligator Farm. You know, out here in, in Florida, we have Gatorland, mm-hmm. you know, where you can, you've got the jumparoo and you can, where the alligators jump out of the water to grab chickens and uh, alligator wrestling and, and all this, you know. In fact, there were several popular Gatorland-like attractions here in Florida. Well, in Los Angeles, they had the alligator farm and it was a very popular tourist attraction. And two years before uh, Disneyland opened, the farm moved uh, to Anaheim. It was uh, uh, became the Buena Park uh, Alligator Farm. So you could you could have gone to Anaheim and seen uh, Knott's Berry Farm in Disneyland, and then go see some live alligators there if that's your idea of a good time. And so, uh, but Walt does, doesn't want you know things dangerous because you know uh, these are uh, guests and safety is important. So at the top of the queue line. You know, st- stuck some uh, bamboo poles and uh, 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 some netting, and there was a little pool. And uh, they had, you know, like maybe about a half dozen baby alligators. So you have small alligators, so, you know, this is not necessarily a, a safety problem. But those darn little babies would find ways <laughs> of getting out of the netting. And so they'd be wandering, you know down towards, uh, you know, where the boat was, and they'd be wandering down the line where the people were were, were standing, and this is not a, a good thing. And so uh, uh, Sully told me, well, you know, they were just little, so you just grab them by the tail and you fling them back in there. And he said, we had a guy uh, with us who had been from Florida, so he could make a sound like an alligator. So he said, so especially like at night, you know, where it was difficult to see and all of that, if, if they had gotten out, this guy would come out and he would make this sound. And, and I guess they thought it was like his mother or whatever. At Gatorland, I, I see them do that, and they try to teach guests to do that, too. You make the, this little sound, and the, the little gators just come, you know, uh, scurrying back. But as you can see, 
that that was quite a challenge to put it uh you know um discreetly there so that uh, that disappeared before you know uh <laughs> the first 6 months of uh, uh of Disneyland but uh I have never seen any photos of that either no, you know? no and that's and, and, and 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 again you know we've talked about this before michael is is that in those days you know, it, it's not like today where, you know, everybody's camera, everybody's phone is a camera and can take these pictures. In those days, you had to buy film, put it in a camera, and you had a limited number of shots, you know, 10, 12, maybe 24. And then you had to send the film away for developing, so you had no idea whether you had actually gotten the right exposure or whatever. And, of course, if you only have 12 shots, you don't want to take a shot of a little baby alligator. You want to take a shot of Aunt Edna standing in front of Sleeping Beauty Castle. Yes. You know, <laughs> so so unfortunately, a lot of that uh, uh, history is gone. But yes, once upon a time, there in the in the queue line, there were little baby alligators, and that was my way of uh, sneaking in a, a, a little bit of history, uh, as well as talking about. Yes, in there are are those electromechanical uh, gators that uh, have since been updated and 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 simplified because again they had long cables that you know got gunked up in the in in the mud of the river and all that and uh, again you know none of these guys knew what they were doing Walt didn't know what he was doing Walt had a rough idea of what he wanted to accomplish but but the uh, technology the the mechanics of getting this done nobody knew so you know <laughs> you're you're putting duct tape and paper clips together trying to get yeah. this stuff to work and somehow it did <laughs> and somehow but, it did and it yeah. still does today yeah <laughs> uh, now let's mosey on over to frontierland where sure. you have some surprising stories about favorite disney attractions now We've all heard the story of the petrified tree being a gift mm -hmm. from Walt to Lillian for their wedding anniversary, but right. that's not the real story. No, see, and again, that's that's one of those stories that uh, people, even those who work at Disneyland, you know, repeat over and over again. You know that Walt was on vacation with his, his wife Lillian, and for their thirty-first um, uh, wedding anniversary. Uh, uh, they happened to go by the uh, Pike's uh, uh, Petrified Forest in Colorado, and Walt bought this tree stump for her as the anniversary gift. And that's not really the story. It, he did at, go to uh, Pike's Petrified Forest in Colorado. Uh, he did say he wanted to buy a small specimen, which uh, uh, cost him... Uh, and this is in 1956, cost him $1,560, bucks, which was pretty sizable there. And um, uh, Lillian didn't even get out of the car. She was angry because <laughs> Walt would constantly be stopping at these places and, and being distracted by bright, shiny things and, you know, going uh, all of all of these things and it, she was just fed up with it you know at one point she refused to go with him to to europe because she says you're always rushing to museums and parks and things like that she says i just want to uh, you know sit on a corner and have a cup of coffee and watch people which is one of the reasons when disneyland was designed there were areas where that could happen and that was 
Lillian's contribution to Disneyland. Um, nowadays, Disney has removed tables and chairs. They don't want people sitting down. They want them going to the attractions or going into the stores and buying things. And that sounds very rude, but that's the reason. Um, so anyway, Walt did buy this, but it was because uh, Mineral Hall was uh, um, uh, was going to open in Frontierland, and Mineral Hall showed fossils, and they had little rocks, and um, and I remember as uh, a, a kid because it it was there for gosh a decade or more, and I I, I remember as a, a little kid going there and. They had the black light, and 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 these rocks glowed, and mm-hmm. and I wanted to to use my money to to buy one of those. And my dad was saying, "You're going to take it home, and it's not going to glow because you don't <laughs> have that light, <laughs> and we're not buying a light." Um, so Walt bought the uh, uh, petrified stump uh, for that, and he and he bought, uh, oh gosh, what was it, a a, a ton or more of. Uh, uh, little bits of fossils and rocks and and uh, uh, all of that, and it was shipped directly to Disneyland. You know, the the story is, oh yes, it went to their house, and Lillian finally decided, uh, no, you know that that it was too large for the mantle, and so now I'm going to, you know, uh, dedicate it at uh, I'm I'm going to give it uh, to Disneyland. You know. Um, and and again, here's another problem. You know, as I'm researching, people are saying, and then Lillian dedicated it, you know, uh, in the park uh, in July um, 1957 on their 32nd uh, wedding anniversary. Their wedding anniversary is July 13th, by the way. Um, and it's not. If you take a look at the plaque, it says presented to Disneyland by Mrs. Walt Disney September 1957. You know, so that's months after their anniversary there. But again, she got tired of having it on her mantle. (laughs) (laughs) Walt just loved a good story. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, his his daughter, Diane, told me that uh, 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 reporters one time asked him, you know, uh, what are the new things you're going to be doing at, at Disneyland? And and Walt said, well, I asked my daughter, what would you like to see? Uh, more at at Disneyland, and she said, "Boys." <laughs> and and I talked with Diane about that, and Diane said, "I never said that in my life." I went to him and I said, "Dad, I never said that." He said, "Yeah, but it's a cute story." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and 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 it got the the name Disneyland in the papers, and that that w- that was the point there. So it's What's a cute that? story that yes. Uh, uh, Lillian struggled with this at her house for a year and then gave it to Disneyland, but no, it went directly to Disneyland and, and Walt did buy her, um, uh, uh for an anniversary gift, uh, something much, uh, uh, nicer. In fact, if you take a look at the picture of the dedication, you see, you know, Walt looking at the stump and then on the left-hand side of the picture, there's Lillian. Take a look at her, um, uh, left wrist. It, it has this charm bracelet. She loved charm bracelets. In fact, at one point, uh, Walt had to get special permission but he, uh, from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, but he had little miniature Oscars made mm-hmm. up 
for a charm bracelet that she wore one time. Yeah, that's at the Walt Disney Family Museum now. That, yes, that is a great mm-hmm. place for people to go. Yeah, you should be doing a show from the Walt Disney uh, <laughs> Family Museum. Funny you say that. <laughs> oh, are you? Oh, is um, this a secret? Oh, right, uh, those of you who are listening, that 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 was just an illusion. Pay no attention. So, but um, yeah, I, I forget who said this, but you know, Walt never let a good story get in the way of the truth, or something. No, no, no. Uh, he 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 never he never lied. It it, mm-hmm. it was more of a uh, it was more of a uh, uh, exaggeration. You know, it it wasn't necessarily alternative facts, but it wasn't. Well, it's like in a court of law, they tell you to tell the truth, tell the whole truth, tell nothing but the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, Walt told the truth, but it wasn't always the whole truth, <laughs> and nothing but the truth. Now, now another uh, story has to do with a lot of people's favorite snacks at Disneyland. It's you know they can't leave the park without one of those fragrant churros yes. and in your book you share how these became associated with disneyland that, that's that's right and in fact disneyland is uh, associated with a lot of um you know uh, foodstuffs I, I i wonder how many listeners realize that doritos were invented at disneyland mm-hmm. they were invented at casa de fritos the mexican restaurant there as a way of, of using something uh, uh, for broken tortilla shells, the hard shells. And so they came up with tortilla chips. And Frito-Lay was, was running Casa de Fritos and thought, okay, let's see if anybody else would be stupid enough to buy these. <laughs> and so uh, Doritos, which is a Spanish word, which I think means little golden things, you know, that's where that came from. Well, when we, we think of Disneyland, Walt Disney World out here has churros, but... At Disneyland, it's like people are going crazy over that. Well, uh, uh, in 1985, that's when churros um, first appeared. Uh, uh, for those of you, because there will be a test later, you know, um, because both Michael and I have been school teachers, so there will be a test later. In 1985 is when churros uh, first appeared, and the guy in charge of food and beverage. Um, in Fantasyland was uh, uh, Jim Loman. Jim Loman actually still works in food and beverage at Disneyland to the this day. I think he, he's getting ready to retire, but uh, last I looked, he, he was still there. And so Disneyland was going to open up this uh, new dance location called Videopolis. And and uh, my gosh, some of you listeners may be just so young you've never even know that something like that existed there, but at the time, that was really cool and groovy. But um, <laughs> so teenagers were going to be coming. All right. So you want something that, that's going to, you know, uh, catch their fancy, something out of the ordinary, something that they can't get anywhere else. And so Loman was at a, um, a, a racing, a car racing event, and uh, he saw his first churro booth. And he saw that, my gosh, all it took to, to make this was you just had to have a very small warming oven. And um, so he did what any good Disneyland person would do, is instead of asking these people, he started digging through the trash. And <laughs> he found an <laughs> empty box from a snack food company. And then Monday, 
he phoned the snack food company directly and said, you know, would you be interested in working, you know, with Disneyland? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, Disneyland, we've heard of that. We, we could do that. But again, Loman wanted something that would be unique to Disneyland. So churros were only six inches. And so what he did is he had them develop a churro uh, that was 12 inches. And so that was not only unique to Disneyland, but you could charge more for it, even though it was just uh, dough and sugar and cinnamon there, you know. And um, but again, you know, just like when you innovate, you know, if nobody's ever done it before, how do you know this is going to work? And so he thought, okay, well, we'll just take this one cart and um, we'll put it in Frontierland over by the by the Mark Twain because churro, you know, this sounds like uh, something that that could be Hispanic and whatever, and that would would fit in with Frontierland. As they were taking this test cart and taking it through Frontierland to its location uh, by the Mark Twain, they had a line of 30 people following, (laughs) which which Uh I can completely believe because I, Mm -hmm. I go to a lot of like comic book conventions and whatever. And I will tell you one of the first, uh, times I ever heard of, uh, uh, cinnamon pecans and cinnamon cashews was at a comic book convention. I was in there, I was looking at things and there was just this most marvelous smell and I went to the back of the room, and there's the these guys selling cinnamon-covered uh, pecans and and cashews there, and almonds too. So uh, I, I can believe that these people followed it. Now the only problem was is they were using propane tanks, and propane can be uh, you know very explosive, and uh, you know they were going through about a dozen of these tanks a day for each cart, and. Uh, so they were they replaced them, you know, uh, with electricity, you know, and uh, uh, again when Videopolis opened, they had two of these churro carts, just went through the roof, and uh, um, I, I'm I'm sure uh, Jim got a pat on the back, good boy, whatever, and churro carts then took over, you know, uh, uh, Disneyland there, and uh, you know they're so well known. That that I just had to laugh in that episode on on the the Simpsons where where Homer is so desperately trying to escape Epcot and he climbs <laughs> over the wall and finally gets into the Magic Kingdom and asks for a churro and they say uh, yeah it, it's fourteen fifty which which <laughs> which isn't that exaggerated unfortunately yeah. but yeah really that's what that's what that is so yeah so if you ever wanted to know where churros came from and uh, how they became a part of Disneyland? Get the book. Well, you know, before we head off into the uh, the outer reaches of the park, it's getting a bit late. You know, we want to we're we're heading over to New Orleans Square next, so I think we'll we're gonna just go over and get ourselves, you know, some Mickey beignets. One, one, mi- listen, talking about and... churros has made me hungry. Why, <laughs> why, right. why don't we get it? Why don't we get a churro? Why, why don't we get the uh, is uh, uh, something that we can only get at, at Disneyland. Since we're heading over to New Orleans Square, we'll, we'll stop over and, and get a mint julep. And then after we've relaxed for a while, maybe we can uh, uh, continue the tour later. 
Sounds good. So join us next time when Jim and I and Tom, we will continue our tour of Disneyland with Jim and hear more secret stories of Disneyland with Jim Corcus. Of course, if you can't wait, you can get his book, Secret Stories of Disneyland. And um, over on Amazon or at themeparkpress.com, we will have links to those in our show notes. And Jim, thank you for joining us on this first part of our tour of Disneyland. Oh, my and, pleasure. But you're, you're paying for the mint julep and the churro. Oh, I'm happy to. <laughs> but, 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 and, um, and remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. 